This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield, the show where we try to refract the world through the prism of deeper ethical contemplation. <laughs> is that a... Like is that it. a better way of starting, Scott? Oh, I just riffed so that. Good. You had me with refract. Very like nice. I should have just stopped if I had just said, welcome to the minefield, the show where we refract. Yeah, I would have been happy. That would have been enough. Yeah. Um, so have I just, on the spur of the moment, written a new slogan? I think so. Slogan? It's fine with me. Quick, oh, no. get our publicists on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll look great on a billboard, that. Anyway, we'll lead out of My name is Scott Stevens, who's my um, marketing consultant yeah. slash co-host. That's me. This is, I guess this is something of a sequel isn't it? Even it is though we didn't of. really set out to do a two-parter, mm. this has just sort of happened. Mm. Identity politics part two. Yeah, kind of, except, yeah. Except not quite. Okay. I want you to flesh that out. Although, unlike last time, this is tied to a happening in the world, mm. sort of of the moment. that I've been intrigued by this because it's one of those meta-conversations, I guess, where you see something happen, then you see the conversation, and then you have the conversation about the conversation, hmm. which is perhaps what we're guilty of doing today. But I've been intrigued by watching all the machinations surrounding the the resignation of Boris Johnson yep. in the UK, and then the the field of candidates hmm. lining up to to replace him, and particularly the conversations that have concerned the diversity of yes. of that field. I don't know. I think there's been a touch of irony to it, but I'll, I'll let you frame it and then we'll go from there. Okay. That's really sweet. Um, <laughs> I think, Waleed, probably the first thing to do, though, is to say something about the circumstances that led up to this moment. I mean, you're right. The field, the field of candidates really is extraordinary. Uh, the fact that of the 11 candidates who uh, put their names forward following the resignation of Boris Johnson, the fact that six of them were either uh, women or from, what's the best way of referring to it? Let's just say they're of ethnic minority heritage. I'll just say they're non-white. Non-white. That's fine. I know people get upset with that because they go, well, that's centering whiteness. But yeah. I feel like if you call them people of color, it's exactly no, the see, same. I, I don't like that much either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there is something kind of remarkable about that. But I think that in many respects that field of candidates would have looked very different had a few things not happened. So firstly, had Boris Johnson, had, had Boris Johnson's premiership not come to an end the way that it came. Um, I mean, there was something kind of remarkable. You remember, Willie, we actually began our broadcasting year by reflecting on both Novak Djokovic and Boris Johnson. Yes. Um, so this is, this is kind of nice. It's like a mid-year reset. But the fact that it was not just political incompetence, although there was, there was a good degree of that, and it wasn't even his kind of freewheeling, swashbuckling, uh, con man, hucksterish approach to retail politics, although there was a good deal of that as well. But it was the fact that flagrant dishonesty, and not just flagrant dishonesty, but getting other people, other senior ministers, other cabinet ministers to go out on his behalf and lie about what he knew and when he knew it. The fact that that was the thing that was, if you like, the bridge too far, the straw that broke the camel's back. There's something about that that I found uh, remarkable, that I found telling. I think it's wrong that a great many of his senior 
uh, aides and ministers took so long to abandon that particular ship, but I'm glad that they did, and I'm glad that that particular disgraceful uh, period of, of leadership has come to an end. But what that did, Walid, is it, I think to some extent, it raised the field, uh, raised with a Z. Um, it limited the number of senior persons who could then nominate themselves for leadership. Because if you had anything of the Boris taint upon you, even if you had all the experience in the world, which would ordinarily be a prerequisite for this kind of role, for this kind of tilted leadership, even if you had all that experience, if you had the Boris taint upon you, then, then you were ruled out in advance. And to some extent, I think the labor opposition in the UK did a very fine job in those dying days of Boris's premiership. To, to say, all of you who propped this huckster up, all of you who gave your support, who, uh, who excused him, who hoped that he had finally turned uh, the page and was going to do things differently, all of you who propped this up, you're all now guilty by association. I think there's something about that that was effective, and it really did have uh, an effect on throwing up an unlikely group of challengers or an unlikely group of contenders, not to say that they're not experienced. Many of them are very experienced. But I think this would have looked very different had, for instance, Boris been able to point to an heir apparent, someone who is the successor to the throne, someone who's able to carry on his vision. Is there anything that, that you want to say about that? Do you think I've gotten that right or wrong? No, or? I think that's a very good summary. I, I am interested when the Labour Party says that. Yeah. Um, are they including the British people in yeah. their condemnation? I there? think that's very interesting. Although you would have to say that popular opinion has so swung against Boris that I think they can probably trade on that fairly easily. One thing that is notable, though, Willie, and I, I mean, to my mind, this could be the stuff of another show. I think the Labour Party is going to have to be very, very careful about saying, and you too, to the British population to the electorate. No, they'll never say that. I'm just wondering if it's implicit. I mean, the thing we overlook is, well, we don't, I suppose, overlook it, but they they have a whopping majority. Yeah. And they won that election off the back of a lot of traditional Labor voters Mm -hmm. and at a time where it's not as though Johnson's government had been like immaculate. Mm -hmm. There were signs of them being disastrous in the lead up to that last election, yeah. right? not least of which was the handling of COVID. So That's true. I don't know. I, I, I just, this is an aside. I shouldn't spend much time on it, but I, I always find this an intriguing aspect of democratic um, exchanges where there is an attempt to create guilt by association. It very often overlooks the popular will in these things. Yeah, look, I, I think the reason that Labor mightn't want to push that too far is because of the growing narrative. And I think there's... I think it's probably 60% right that it wasn't so much that the, that the Tories won the 2019 election with a whopping majority because of the, char- the charisma of their candidate and the uh, immaculateness of their policies. But in a very real way, Labour lost that election, or to put it more pointedly, Jeremy Corbyn lost that election. He yeah, was so Yeah, but if so you lose distasteful. an election, it's usually close, right? Like if it's that they didn't win it, you lost it. Not, not, not really. Not when Labour Party members are the ones who choose the candidate, and it's a candidate mm. that has that does not command a great deal of respect and admiration from other MPs. There, there, there are many different layers to this that make that 
I think, complicated. But I think if... Sorry, sorry, can I just... Yeah, please. I, I worry we're about to do a totally different show. Would you say <laughs> similarly then that the Democrats lost the 2016 election? Uh, yes. Uh, almost any other... How can we put this? Hillary Clinton was to the right what Donald Trump was to the left. Right. Any other moderately centrist candidate, I think, could have beaten Trump quite easily. So there's two things about that. One is um, there's a countervailing analysis which says actually the, the best candidate to take on Trump would have been someone who was properly to the left, so like a, like a, a Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Yeah. And uh, Hillary Clinton was actually the moderate establishment candidate, and mm. that's why she lost. There's very specific things about Hillary Clinton being a Clinton, being in public life for so long, et cetera, that make her a special case. But yeah, but there are also other things. There are also other things. The fact, for instance, that the Clintons represent, especially to the right, a particularly noxious form of elitism. Not so much the elitism of wealth, but the elitism of discreet power, of discreet influence, of being able to be in the closed room with people over and over and over, over again, and over again. Decades, yeah. and, and, and the other thing just just on, on that uh, the Clintons also represent for the right for many on the right a particular form of contemptuousness uh, it's it's mm. it's really notable to me Willie that uh, Ken Starr's book on his uh, years prosecuting the Clintons uh, is called contempt uh, and one of the reasons for that is uh, it, it's not just sort of their contempt of Congress or their contempt of uh, of judicial process, but also he says the the consistent contempt they display to the American people. Baskets um, of deplorables. Baskets of deplorables to so, phrase. Okay. But then the, the second point is, if you want to say the Democrats lost that election, mm. I fear what you do is gloss over the very real phenomenon yes. that was the support. That the will Donald of the Trump people, attracted. effectively. The will of the people. Yeah. yeah. There was, it wasn't just a negative vote against Clinton. There, there was a positive vote for Trump. Mm. That's right which you can describe as negative in other ways, but that's what it was, mm. right? I don't know. I just wonder about... No, look, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm with that's... you, and, and this is where the way that I think the British Labour Party, the way that they pivot off this and try to turn it to their electoral advantage, namely Johnson's decline or Johnson's collapse, the way that they do that is going to have to be very, very sophisticated, because one of the interesting things is they can't really take simply a small target strategy to the next election because it's two years between now and the next election. You can't you can't simply seed the the policy terrain uh, and try to force the other side to lose uh, rather than put, putting something mm. forward that will make your side win. The other thing they simply can't do they can't say that the British people got Brexit wrong, uh, and it's it's notable to me that the British Labour Party has said you know, we we support Brexit now. We're not going to go back on this. This well, was... Which is what Jeremy Corbyn couldn't do, even though he probably did support it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. but, but the other thing that they can't do is to say, you were the person who put this huckster in power. You were the person who supported him all the way. You were the person... I, I mean, what, what, what I think the Labour Party can say is that the conditions created by COVID and the sense of betrayal... Uh, that so many people felt following the party gates scandal and everything that came after. That revealed something that maybe 
people couldn't have seen before. Maybe they saw they maybe they liked Boris's optimism. Maybe they liked his kind of upbeat new Toryism. Maybe they liked his uh, uh, his environmental policy and his plans for the future. Maybe they just liked someone uh, who entertained them in office. Um, they they can say all of those things, but they can't say you got it wrong in the person or you were duped in the person that you um, yeah. that, that, that you chose. One other quick thing, Waleed, this is we're all <laughs> kind of establishing the terrain here. We've got to move off it really quickly. Um, the, other, the other thing that I think created this particular, the circumstances for, the, for this particular leadership contest is uh, Boris Johnson's own purge of a great many very, very, very senior Tory party members in 2019. Uh, remember his, um, his purge of people who who weren't willing to take the prospect of a no-deal Brexit um, right to the final moment. Um, so there was something about that that I think created a, you don't want to say it created a talent deficit because I don't think it did that, but it certainly limited the number of people that under more ordinary circumstances would have stood for the election. Here's the point, yeah. though. I like that how far we're veered. What, <laughs> us veer off topic? No. Um, uh, the one other thing, the one other thing, Waleed. Oh, another okay. Is that over the last 12 years, over the last 12 years, and this is from David Cameron's election in 2010, uh, the Tories have undertaken a very, very deliberate policy of recruiting persons of non-white heritage or non-white background mm. uh, into their ranks. And not just into their ranks as run-of-the-mill garden variety MPs, but in the most senior positions of leadership. Now, what that means is, uh, as we've come to expect from the conservative side of politics, that pursuit rewarded aspiration. It rewarded achievement. It rewarded achievement and, in fact, overachievement on the part of those of non-white heritage or those non-white candidates. And so what that means is we have this fabulously diverse cast of contenders for the leadership of the Conservative Party and therefore the Prime Ministership. And yet, and here's where I'm going to get you to pick up, it seems to me that the diversity says almost nothing about what you would want to know about the candidates' various policies. I mean, the the candidates are distinct from one another on so many different issues. They are distinct from one another along so many different axes And being male or female and being white or non-white, in some respects, that's almost the least telling thing about the various axes that distinguishes the different candidates, which has led many people to say, okay, it's great that we've got this diversity, but what's the point of political diversity if you're just getting the same noxious or unjust or inequitable policies? I don't think that's... Exactly what they're saying. I mean, it, it is, but I think they're making a point that's slightly different to that which I find intriguing okay, for what please. it reveals. I think the point the commentary is making is we say we want diversity in politics. Diversity basically meaning women and non-white people hmm. in senior positions. In, incidentally, I, I think youth is part of this as well, Willie. This is a very young yeah, cast. That's probably true, mm. yeah. Um, although it's, that's not as emphasised in no, diversity not. discourse, right? Yep. Anyway, we say we want this. And then people wake up to a reality 
that in the very near future, Britain could be a place where it is the Conservatives that have delivered two female Prime Ministers and a non-white Prime Minister mm. in Britain. Yep. <laughs> in Britain. Mm. Labor will have not, not have done that. It's the Conservatives that have done that. Mm. And what emerges from that is what I think is an, a very predictable inflection point in the sort of politics of diversity and representation, but one that I don't think had been anticipated enough, and which is telling, which is to say, yeah, but this diversity doesn't really count because they're non-white people who don't like immigrants or whatever. Hmm. So in other words... Well, hang on. I don't think you can say non-white people who don't like immigrants. You could maybe say non-white people who are enacting or who are responsible for the enactment of policies. That, oh, sure. Yes. You're, that's a more literal rendering of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of being blunt in okay. the way that I put it. Yeah. Sure. But you know, I think that's interesting, right? Because and I've been thinking about this for a long time. I, I think diversity in public life is important. Mm. I think representation matters to some degree. I don't... I think sometimes the extent to which it matters is overstated, but I do think it matters. Mm. But what has bothered me for quite a while about the diversity discourse is that I'm not sure that so many of the people who are pushing it actually want diversity. I think what they want is sameness from a diverse-looking group of people. This would be the ornamentalization if you like, of diversity in representative politics. Yeah, I don't think they see it that way. But what they really want is a group of people with different genders and ethnicities and races all uttering the same progressive pieties. Hmm. And when it turns out that the diversity is coming from the conservative side of politics... I think anyway, there is an undertone that this is a kind of illegitimate diversity because they're not saying the things that we are wanting diversity to stand for. So in other words, diversity is great as long as they're not too conservative. And mm. I think this is an interesting problem because actually there's a very real question as to which set of attitudes, to the extent we can be so crude as to hive all these attitudes off into conservative and progressive boxes. There's a very real question as to which of those attitudes is actually more representative of the kind of particular ethnic and cultural diversity yeah, that true. exists in society, right? Mm. And this, I think, represents a kind of disconnect. And this is where this show, I think, becomes the sequel of a show about elite capture. The discourse, the prevailing discourse of diversity advocates is a discourse that comes from those who are within the context of a knowledge economy, the elite. They've typically got their ideas from their experiences in tertiary education, often in arts degrees, so on and so forth. They think in these kind of symbolic ways uh, and so they attach symbolic value to representation. The communities, however, from which they emerge are not necessarily reflective of that. That is to say... Those sort of attitudes are, I think they are, but at the very least they are likely to be, minority attitudes from within those communities. We see this play out, uh, we saw this play out in Australia in the same-sex marriage plebiscite. Mm. Right? Where was the no vote concentrated? 
Well, it was concentrated in migrant communities. Mm, that's right. Yeah, that, that would not be... If you polled diversity advocates, they, that wouldn't have been their vote, I suspect. Right? In other words, for all the talk of diversity, what they're attaching themselves to is a particular cosmopolitan view of the world that is attached to a particular progressive kind of politics. And I think what this does is not merely raise questions about, you know, the candidates and their policies and whether these are good policies or not. That, that, that's the most basic uh, democratic question, which is not quite what's being discussed here. I think they raise questions about the precise meaning of diversity politics and whether or not it is actually standing for something that is especially coherent or that's sorry, that's to put it too harshly, whether or not it's worked out the theoretical basis from which it wants to assert the importance of diversity mm. and precisely how much and what kind of diversity it's up for. These are very real questions. I don't think they're really being discussed within uh, diversity advocate circles. No, you're right. I really want to bring in our guest. Can I sure. make one very quick inflection. Okay. Oh, man, it's so complicated, isn't it? Because one of the things that I think, and in a very real way, I, I think you're self-evidently correct. I think we need to be much clearer about what we understand the point of diversity in political representation to be. And I think that's going to form a substantial part of the conversation we have from here on in. And what counts as diversity. And what counts as diversity. So is a diversity of ideas, for example, part of this? Yeah. Or is it not? Or is it only a diversity of identity labels? Yeah. But I think this is where something like diversity in class really matters as well. Yeah. So Which is left out of the conversation. Almost entirely. So if you think about, I mean, one of the remarkable things, I don't know what you think about this, actually. We've never discussed this before. I mean, in the British Labour Party... Labor's approach, for the most part, and they have many, many ethnically diverse MPs, but not as many in senior positions. And one of the reasons for that is they've tended to, to promote ethnically diverse persons in ethnically diverse seats on the understanding that the best person to represent that group of people is for there to be a person who looks like or yeah. seems to emerge from that group of people. Uh, so there's kind of far more straightforward connection there. I think we can press a little bit on to whether or not that representation really is as direct as we would want it to be. And I think this is one of your main points of, of provocation. But one of the things that the Tories have done is they've had no qualms about, say, promoting Rishi Sunak, a fabulously wealthy, privately school-educated investment banker, who needs not have any ethnic connection whatsoever to the majority of the persons uh, in his seat, or someone like uh, Kemi Badenoch, who is a who was a computer analyst. She was a systems analyst for a private uh, investment bank. Um, there need not be any connection whatsoever between her and, from memory, she's in the seat of Wimbledon. So. I think the, 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 the interesting thing there is that individual aspiration, the excellence of these candidates, no matter where they've come from, they can then, within the Tory party, they can then sit 
uh, in whatever electorate suits the party. And what that means is they're far more amenable to being promoted into positions of, say, a senior cabinet minister or, or foreign secretary or something like that. Um, whereas in the Labour Party, the connection needs to be a little bit more literal, a bit more straightforward on the understanding that there's going to be something like a more representative equivalence. And I don't think, I, I think what's being left out there. Sorry, can I suggest, is this the SBSification of Yes, it is. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Now, the problem then is that when we have a candidate that emerges genuinely organically from a particular seat, say they are a a community organizer, or there's someone who's emerged and been steadily promoted uh, through a particular ethnic or religious community, and then they come into politics that way, as we've seen in the United States, as we've seen in Australia, I think there's something there that's much more interesting. In other words, the class dimension, the fact that they're not necessarily one of the educated elites. I think there's something there that is really, really interesting. And it could, in fact, lead to a more potent sense of diverse representation, rather than the more, uh, the more literal or ornamental uh, form of diversity that you've been talking about. That, that, that I think, for, for me, is the one little, one little inflection that I would add. There's so many more things to get into, but I think we need a guest to do it. All right. That means I should do the research, yes. doesn't it? <laughs> All right. This is The Minefield on RN and on podcast. I'm Willie Daly. My co-host is Scott Stevens. Uh, our guest is Maria Taflaga. She is a lecturer in the School of Political and International Relations at the Australian National University. She is a, how do I put it, Maria? I'm not sure you're exactly a co-host, but let's just say you're a very, 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 very regular on the Democracy Sausage podcast, which is, I think, one of Australia's very best. Maria, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you for having me. Now, Maria, uh, it may well be that there's some particular stuff that Willie and I were just discussing that you think is important to reflect on. There are a few things, obviously, that we've left out about the peculiarity of British politics. But I'm really curious about what you think about the dynamics of representation itself. It seems to me that there are very bad ways of thinking about representation that a local representative simply you know, sort of takes the electoral consent that's been given to them and uses it in their own uh, political interests or that that then gets aggregated effectively by the party who simply uses that representative's uh, number as just another uh, number in the uh, parliamentary decision game. But there are, of course, other forms of representation. Representation, for instance, where the person representing a particular community Uh, displays or exhibits a very real emotional attachment to that community, kind of gives uh, ample demonstration or evidence that the representative feels what her constituents feel. So there are a whole lot of really complicated things surrounding diversity and representation and the internal dynamics of representation. But I'll just hand it over to you. Where do you want to take us? Yeah, okay, sure. It's a very interesting and nuanced uh, relationship and it has sort of several dimensions. But before I do that, I do want to throw a small spanner in your in your previous discussion's works. And 
And it's really interesting to me listening to you guys sort of sort of thrash out some of the dimensions of, you know, how how well the Conservative Party in the, the United Kingdom had been at representing people. But there are like some sort of few like institutional dimensions hmm. um, to what's going on in the UK that perhaps just make it simply easier for this to have occurred than, say, a place like Australia. Like simply it's a bigger parliament. So there's just more seats. So there's less competition or there's just more capacity to compete. Um, so it's sort of easier to sort of enter a competition if if you're not fighting for such a small number of seats. The Tories are the party of government. They, they are most likely to be the government. And so it's actually almost in a way easier for them to achieve all of these first because they're simply there and they have more seats. You know, the particular politics around the Red Wall, you know, in part drive some of this phenomena. And, you know, there has been empirical evidence to kind of demonstrate that for some ethnic groups, um, having a candidate, like so, for example, having a Pakistani candidate in a Labor seat drives up turnout in that community, but it actually suppresses turnout amongst Sikhs, for example. Mm. So so there are these sort of dimensions, which I guess we would kind of call hard-tack empirical kind of observations that are interacting with the sort of concepts around representation and diversity um, that you guys have um, been discussing. So to your original question, Scott. Yeah, okay. So why why is diversity important in politics? And it, it sort of boils down to, to two kind of axes, if you think about it. One is under the bag of legitimacy. And, you know, here it's sort of fairly self-interested, actually, in terms of the, the regime. Uh, so being able to maintain legitimacy, by maintaining a relationship with the population, you know, one is just simply through accountability, right? This is a really basic kind of thing. We elect you, we see you do bad things, we have the, the option to punish you. But it's also in the population effectively believing that their representatives are doing a good job, that the system is responsive enough to the changing needs of society. It means that people will continue to essentially trust those delegates to go off and govern for them and to kind of do it without paying too much attention rather than turning away and looking for alternative voices who might not actually support the regime. And you've already kind of discussed a bunch of these already with in the case of Trump, for example, and, and, and what happened um, in, in the 2016 election amongst some voters who essentially started voting for anti-system candidates. And we see that across Europe. We see that in Australia. People who, uh, for whatever reason, feel like their political grievances and their political needs cannot be met by the current political system. The, the final one around, like, I guess, the sort of political institutions, legitimacy of it, relates to how politics is done, right? So the norms that are imbibed and the ways of doing, because whilst, you know, lots of things are written down about how parliaments should function and what uh, what should sort of go on in, in parliament, introducing different actors, new actors, does change what is discussed. And it can, um, over time, especially if you increase diversity, can actually change how things are um, discussed or at least lead to like greater discussion of that. The second one relates to outcomes. You know, I mean, once women started being in parliament, they started talking about things like the need for hysterectomies and domestic violence. These were things that were simply not discussed before that. And it kind of goes to what you were saying right at the 
end of your introduction around feeling, right? Why are there arguments to expand the franchise? Why have they existed throughout the 19th century? Why do we talk about doing this for youth? Because there is a recognition that the political system is failing these uh, constituent groups. It's not able to imagine their circumstances sufficiently in order to act uh, sufficiently in their interests or to balance their interests with the correct weight mm. against everyone else's interests. And this need for representation is weighted against competence. And in the case of diverse peoples, like there's no question of their competence. We already give them the vote. The problem lies in the fact that they are not in the domain where decisions are made, so they are unable to translate their vote into sufficient force to get enough outcomes. Yeah, so I agree with that entire summary. I should flag my interest here is not so much in the success or otherwise of the Tories in the UK as in the sort of conceptual and theoretical dimensions surrounding the politics of diversity. And the only thing I would add to what you said there, Marie, is I probably approach it from a Habermasian direction mm-hmm. um, and think about the idea of the public square or the public sphere as a place where citizens gather in their public capacities to help form this thing called public opinion, which doesn't really exist unless you have a public square. And that one of the assumptions of that is that it's a it's a sphere or a square to which all people have access. And so if you if you don't see diversity represented, that's a sign of a public square that is not really meeting its definition. Right. And so that's kind of my theoretical hmm. entry point into it. But what the problem I think I begin to have with it is with, with the way diversity politics gets prosecuted is that by making it merely about the appearance of people with various identity boxes ticked in certain places and then kind of being shocked when they don't espouse a worldview that fits with some kind of... Um, predetermined assumption about what that worldview should be that attaches to the identity box is that it it can't help but reveal two things. One, not a real commitment to diversity in the full sense of the term, um, in the sense of having different ideas gathering in a place, including ones that may, you may not like or that might make you feel uncomfortable. But secondly, it seems to me they can't help but essentialise the very categories of people that they're ostensibly trying to liberate or see represented, right? So the logic becomes inescapably, it seems to me, yeah, but a real woman wouldn't think that or a real black person wouldn't think that or a real migrant wouldn't support that policy. And not only is that, A, I think, ironically dehumanising, but B, it's empirically incorrect in so many cases. I mean, when when I think about... Um, some of the most hardline attitudes towards asylum seekers in Australia, for example, they dwell in a disproportionate uh, amount among migrants themselves, mm. right? And we can have a whole psychoanalytic discussion about why that might be. You know, we came in the right way, they got to come in the right way too, blah, blah, whatever it is, whatever the diagnosis, that seems to be, as best I can discern it, the empirical fact so why then are we trying to take people like that and stuff them in a box that actually has nothing to do with them simply because that's what emanates from the way the knowledge class approaches the identity politics of diversity? Well, I, I think you've sort of, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there, right? Like 
Okay, so when we say diversity politics, like we're, we're talking about post-material politics, right, which appeals to a, mm. a, a subset of the cosmopolitan political elite that pretty much runs everything. Um, and and that's that's not a majority. Like we, we know that from many public policy domains where they simply don't have a, a majority. And, and And if you think about it, Diversity is actually kind of a heuristic for a bag of ideas, but also a bunch of practices. And I think it's those practices, to kind of go back to what you were saying at the very beginning, in sort of acting in the same way or acting in the same kind of manner or using the same kind of language, which helps to kind of knit together all the potential competing disparate interests, right, that uh, all these diverse people have and kind of why there can sometimes be a resistance to wanting to actually deal with um, zero-sum, you know, claims to rights, and why it can be dif- difficult and why they, you know, why you might hear things like, oh, but can't we all kind of get along or, um, you know, can't we all just, you know, live in peace or, or, or whatever. And and I think that's why you sort of get this sort of situation. And it's these these people who exist outside of these practices who, who you know, ought to be to participating are, are, well, they're a challenge to that way of being and way of thinking. They're, they're a living counterexample, so I, I'm not surprised that they are accused of false consciousness in essence. See, one of the things that I think we're tiptoeing around that strikes me as being really, really significant for what it is we're trying to discuss is, dare I say it, the problem of absolute party discipline. I mean, we often talk I'm about... Not, I'm not sure it's, it's a problem that is especially relevant in the UK, though. Well, no, I think that's exactly right. One of the things that's been remarkable about the leadership, the Tory leadership debate is just how different these different candidates are allowed to be from one another. I mean, if you even think about, say, uh, the differences and the the mutual constraints imposed by Boris Johnson on Rishi Sunak as chancellor and Sunak on Johnson, um, I mean, that already signals, I think, a difference from the Australian system. But if if you think, for instance, about the thresher that a lot of would-be candidates have to go through in order to uh, receive their party's nomination or their party's endorsement, uh, and then you go through what it is that happens just sort of earning your stripes, knowing when to speak, knowing when not to, knowing when to be a number, and knowing when to make a particular uh, sort of substantive contribution to a particular debate or a particular issue. I mean, this was Simone Weil's great problem and w- why she called for the abolition of political parties. It suffocates conscience. The very distinctiveness that a particular perspective on the world or the one that emerges from a particular class or a particular experience of, of a particular minority group or a particular religion or a particular gender, the very things that ought to give that its texture, that ought to make its distinctive contribution to the debates that shape our common life, those are the very things that then get sort of suffocated and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the hard edges, if you like, worn off by the imposition of absolute party discipline and the kind of unanimity of public voice. So when, even when we're talking about political diversity, 
Of course, we would want to say that those diverse perspectives will make their way in a whole lot of ways into internal, say, party discussion. It's very, very difficult to turn a group of people or a class of people into a problem when one of them is sitting there in the room as an active agent in any kind of substantive conversation. I think that that's right. But at the same time, when you have that kind of absolute party discipline and the the often punishing process that many people go through working their way up from, say, being a community organizer or a community advocate into the ranks of politics, that process itself can often turn, I think, diversity necessarily into a mere ornament, into a background to the prime minister who's addressing, you know, who's standing at the dispatch box. That, that, that I think, really is a problem, isn't it? Well, look, I mean, it can be, but I guess, you know, like the UK's whipping system is is quite different to ours. Like they have like what is called like a a three-line whip. So essentially the whip's job is to sort of signal to the membership how serious a vote is to the government. Um, And so that sort of absolute party discipline is sometimes kind of relaxed. And the UK... It's worse in Australia for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, Australia is one of the most um, disciplined in in the world. I, I think there there may be one that's uh, stronger than 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 ours on the the rice index, as it's called. Um, but I think you know you're kind of you're making a you're you're making I think you're making an important point. And I guess the way I would extend it is that like if we look at someone like Rishi Sunak, you know, I mean, yeah. So his grandmother emigrates to the UK. Uh, his mother becomes a pharmacist, and his dad is a doctor. He then goes on to, um, you know, pri- elite private schools and goes to Oxford. You know, that is that is not necessarily the uh, story we imagine when we think of a migrant who came in the '60s and and what that person's life kind of looks like. You know, Rishi Sunak has all the kinds of, um, you know, uh, he has intellectual capital social capital and just plain old good-fashioned capital. Like, it is actually not surprising, therefore, that he would identify um, with the Tory party, right, which is about sort of, uh, you know, opportunity relative to sort of mediated by by talent. Um, but, you know, also he came from a middle-class family and he has now sort of middle-class like you know, trending to sort of upper-middle-class values. Um, if you kind of look at uh, migrants who represent, um, uh, who are in the in the parliament here, well, you sort of you sort of see an interesting differentiation between those that join the Libs and those that join Labor, uh, which is a long. This is my roundabout way of saying, like it, it sort of it comes back down to class, you mm. know, or mm. or and, and education. Or, mm. Exactly, and education, like because that's the thing, right? Like just because you're ethnic, um, doesn't mean that you're you're potentially kind of defined by that. But it it is can, it can be kind of complicated, right? So, so you know, you look at Tanya Plibersek. You know, she she talks about her um, her father as you know, I think he was a boilermaker. Um, you know, um, and her mum worked in a in a factory. Um, you know, Ed Husick is the same. You know, his his parents um, were essentially factory fodder of of one kind or another, and their sacrifice, right? And you know, and the, and the, what they were able to give them 
uh, with those jobs is motivating them to work for labour. Whereas there are other migrants who, who you know move on to the coalition side, and they do that potentially for for two types of reasons. Like you know their parents were entrepreneurs, they started their own businesses, so those values align. Or they're social conservatives, yes, and they see right. that those values are protected by the Liberal Party. And that's the thing about migrant communities, right? Like you know they're just like the rest of us. Actually, they might have specific. And well, actually, we know this. We know this from um, you know um, electoral behavioural studies in the UK, for example. Like different minority groups, there do behave differently based on their demographics. So I think um, you know people from a Black African heritage, like they they actually have high degrees of education and they vote as you would expect, and they engage with the political system as you would expect with people who have high education. Uh, whereas, you know, first-generation Pakistani migrants um, behave uh, differently because they're, they're coming from a different socio-economic background. Their way into politics is different. But by the time you get to their children, they, they, they pretty much look like the general population. It's all driven off their level of education. And what might be, you know, and, um, and other kinds of, you know, are they female, what kind of degree they did, that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, we sort of see that class is there. I guess what is the kind of interesting kind of point, right, is that because of the way conservative parties talk about uh, belonging to the nation, they can sometimes really alienate groups that should vote for them because they have the same, you know, economic values around aspiration, around the role of government, you know, um, not supporting, quote unquote, doll bludgers, things like that. And so, yeah, it's not actually at all surprising that there are large numbers of people who are very happy to vote for conservatives, even though they are, quote unquote, diverse, because, yeah, I think you're right. Like, we tend to essentialize these groups of people. We kind of like to make claims that they'll all vote the same way when, you know, what's kind of going on in these communities is actually really quite kind of complex. And it's that difference between the generation that is that is actually the heart of that comp that complexity, you know, like people are coming from having been socialised in other systems into our system and their children may react to that kind of depending on how easy it is for them to feel included in the system. And I guess that's what some of these claims towards diversity are about. Like how can I possibly fully participate in this country and be welcomed if um, I can't see myself represented or my values aren't represented or I'm simply told, like, you know, John Howard used to say, that I'm not part of the core culture and I need to learn about Donald Bradman, otherwise I'm never going to be Australian. Um, you are listening to The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host. That voice belongs to Maria Taflaga, who is the director of the ANU's Australian Politics Studies Centre, lecturer in the School of Political and International Relations. I think um, the, perhaps the signature example of this that shows up in a maddening sort of way uh, would be what gets sort of very crudely described as the Latino vote in America, mm, right? where that's right. it's only when you begin to, to pass the different groups of people, the different nationalities that make up this category of Latino that you start to see that there's a very, very strong Republican attachment amongst the Cuban community, for example, because of historic policy towards Cuba. Um, there's um, a natural 
conservative family values type vote within Latino communities that the um, that the Republican Party can draw on, even though they've begun to shed some of those voters they perhaps should have been retaining. Uh, and then you get Latinos from other parts of Latin America for whom, um, you know, the rhetoric around Mexicans or whatever really is an alienating sort of thing. And it makes me think about two things. One, how maddening it is that people will be surprised that so many Latinos voted for Trump, for example, as though they've just not been paying attention. But that illustrates that that's understanding political behaviour through the single axis of identity and collapsing identity into an impossibly crude category that doesn't really describe anything except perhaps the political proclivities of those who are using the category. Um, When you talk about, for example, Maria, seeing yourself represented in this, even that is a really, really complicated metric. Yep. Who's the you that's being represented here? Is it is it a, a, a racial or a gender identity? Is it a class thing? Is it an education thing? Is it, um, I don't know, the particular musical tastes that you have or whatever? Like, in other words, when I look at a screen, uh, and, and this happened to me growing up, when I look at a screen, there were many ways in which I was not at all represented by the people on it and other ways in which I was. And so, so much of my political or social expression is going to come down to which of those things seem to matter more to me as I go through life or in the moments that I'm observing the public sphere. Yeah. And, and you're, what you're kind of, you're pointing to here is uh, ultimately the role of, of parties and, and ideologies, right, which are interest aggregators and allow us to kind of build those coalitions. And one of the things about the United States that drives some of this massive distortion is the fact that it is a two party dominant system and that the electoral system is such that it's impossible for any other uh, forces to break into that um, that uh, structure, right? I mean, you, may, you recall that Hillary did win more votes. She just didn't translate them um, into a win. And so it's not surprising that so much of this discourse and its sort of, I guess, reduction is led out of the US, you know, for, for two obvious reasons. One is just the institutional setup I said, you know, so this big coalitions have to be built and so they have to kind of like dial up the level of abstraction so they can include as many people as possible. And the second is, is that it's extremely diverse and really unequal. So there is a need to address these big pressing problems. But when you were growing up, you know, Waleed, like you might not have seen someone of Egyptian heritage, right? Uh, but you saw people who represented your values and, uh, you know, to some degree. And so there was a way for you to kind of clip on to the system. I guess what might be, and you perhaps your, expe- I mean, mine were, your expectations were simply lower that, you know, you didn't expect to see someone who looked exactly like you in parliament. So you would satisfy for, you know, the alternatives that were available to you, you know, your best sort of fit. Um, and it could just be the case now that you know um because i think scott's right like it is it is a it is a discourse driven by younger people they're not satisfied with that they want the political system to respond to respond faster um 
and and in some ways that makes sense, right? Like what what are the political conflicts that are um, you know potent in the world and have been for the last fifteen years? It's, it's climate change and inequality, and in some ways this is a generational kind of story, right? Like um, and in times past, older people would have died at the age of 60 um, and younger people would have then formed a majority and we would have moved on. But we seem to be unable to kind of push through these policy problems and that I think is also creating this desire, this need to see representation at the table because we're having trouble translating the the needs of different interest groups into political outcomes. Yeah, Mm, but but only where that representation looks a particular way. That's... That's my point. Last word to you, Scott. But I think yeah, about I was just also going to say that uh, for for both of you, I think what this demonstrates is that the idea, and this is what often surrounds our descriptions of of representation. We want to see someone who looks like us sitting there on the parliamentary benches. That's never quite that's never quite gelled with me, especially where we are at the moment. I don't think it's simply we want to see someone who's like us. It's more we want to be sure that you can feel what we feel that you have some way of registering our pain, our grief, our desperation, our worry about the climate, our concern about precarity and inequality, um, uh, our, our exposure as being made sort of victims or subjects of public debate and active discrimination. So I think it's that, it's that point of, of, of empathetic representation, which is why as soon as you have a politician or a political party that displays a resolute tenure, to that kind of understanding, to that kind of acknowledgement uh, um, of, of another's pain, of another's precarity. That's when you find, okay, you've just got nothing to say to us. And I guess then your point, Maria, is that to what extent is mere imagination, is mere empathy enough? Do you need to have that deeper well of experience within community or within social life in order to be able to feel the way that the people's representatives are supposed to feel? I think humans are deeply unimaginative and I think that's why people think that if someone looks like them, the chance of them understanding them goes up. Hmm. There you go. Mm. Deeply unimaginative. It's a fair description of the show, uh, which is now at an end. Maria, thank you. It's been so much fun speaking. It's one of those shows we wish we could do another sequel for, so I really, really appreciate your contribution. My pleasure. That's Maria Taflaga, who's a lecturer in the School of Political and International Relations at the Australian National University, our guest for this week's edition of The Mindfield. We'll see you next time. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.